0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and we will focus on um, verses 14 through 21 this afternoon. Acts 2, and we'll look at specifically verses 14 to 21. There are countless known and unknown turning points in history. Uh, we recently celebrated 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg and sparked in many ways the Great Reformation. That was a major turning point in history. You can think about other things, maybe smaller turning points. You think about the, the first flights that the Wright brothers took there at Kitty Hawk, that that was a, a turning point of, of, of some sort in history. You can think about uh, March 10th, 1876. That's when Alexander Graham Bell made the first phone call. What would Mr. Bell think of what we've done with the phone? I don't know. Um, but that was a turning point in history. Um, I remember watching a Ken Burns documentary on jazz music, and he talked about imagining the first time that, that Louis Armstrong picked up a trumpet and played a note, and that that was a, a turning point in music history, that he created this whole new um, phenomenon of jazz music. There's turning points in history, and here in Acts 2, we find a vastly more important turning point in history than any of these things. The day of Pentecost that's recorded here in Acts 2 changed everything, certainly for followers of Jesus, even for the the Jewish people, but it also has changed the entire course of the history of the entire world. We, We often readily see that with Uh, The death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's a a watershed moment in history. In fact, that's what we divide our history into, B.C. and and A.D., and it's marked each year by this great celebration of of Good Friday and of Easter that we're even anticipating now. Um, But I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that just as the cross and the resurrection were definitive, groundbreaking moments in salvation history, in the history of the world, so too was the day of Pentecost. God in Christ was working in a profound and a powerful way when he sent the Holy Spirit to his followers. There's one sense in which it, had, it, it was the fulfillment of what had been longed for for ages. But in another sense, the day of Pentecost, there, there was a newness to what God was doing that, that had not been fully expected. When the Spirit fell on those 120 believers gathered in Jerusalem, uh, a completely new age of God's work in the world was born. And it's in fact an age that we still live in even now. This is the new covenant age of the Spirit's presence in all true followers of Jesus Christ. And we live right now in what the prophets called the last days. And given this massive shift, I, I think it's just wise for us to, to go slower here than maybe I even anticipated, just to make sure that we feel and see what this, this day signals in the life of the church and in your life and in, in my life, that we don't brush past it too quickly. And my hope is, is that in seeing what has been fulfilled in Pentecost, that we would be filled with a longing for, and an an expectation of and a seeking after the, the power of the Spirit as we strive to walk in our daily lives in obedience to God's call to us as individuals and to us as a church, that we would long for that, that we would grasp in some sense the glory of the days that we live in, of the power of the Spirit who lives in us. And as we press into this, this afternoon, where I want to eventually land is on this challenge to live as spirit indwelt, spirit empowered, live as the spirit indwelt and spirit empowered prophet that Jesus has made you into. I hope that becomes more clear, but I'll say it again. Live as the spirit indwelt and spirit empowered prophet. Jesus has made you into. With that in mind, live as the spirit and dwelt, spirit empowered prophet, Jesus has made you into. Let's read Acts chapter two. And I want to read verses one through 13 again, and we'll go all the way to verse 21. Look at this watershed moment in the history of the universe. When the day of Pentecost arrived, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, Last week, we tried to describe exactly what happened on that historical day as it's described there in in Acts 2, 1 to 13. We saw the signs. There were two signs, a sound and a sight, the sound of wind and the sight of these tongues of fire. And we said that these external signs pointed to the deeper spiritual and redemptive realities that were happening on this day. So the sound of the wind pointed to the indwelling and the filling of the Spirit and the tongues Uh, uh, The tongues of fire pointed to the the speaking of various languages that followed, and therefore the opening of the door of salvation to all nations. The word for spirit is the same as the word for wind, and so this rushing wind is the obvious and appropriate sign for the Spirit's coming. And it's also the Spirit who is said to be the agent often in creation, and we even see the Spirit right at the very beginning in Genesis 1-2. He's hovering over the the face of, of the deep, so the spirit is always present at new creation. So, in some ways, he has to be present here at the creation of the new covenant people of God. These tongues of fire, then, we think about too. You remember that John the Baptist said that Jesus would bring a baptism of the spirit and of fire. The fire, presumably, being the judgment of of God. But John, John the Baptist himself, was confused because this fiery judgment never seemed to be a large part of of Jesus's ministry. Um, What we instead find is that Jesus, while not baptizing others with fire during his ministry, underwent a baptism of fire himself through his own death. The promised baptism of fire came not on others, but on Jesus as he bore our sins and absorbed God's wrath for us. So that when this fire comes on Pentecost, it is... As Sinclair Ferguson calls it, it is a baptism of gracious rather than destructive power because of the judgment which Christ had vicariously borne in his passion. And so we can give thanks to God that when we come to faith in Christ, we are filled with his spirit and we are filled with this power of his spirit. So we read that these signs were heard and seen by the disciples. But then in verses 5 to 13, we find that the crowd, whether it's outside the doors of the upper room or maybe in the temple courts, is out there. And these other people, the crowd hears and sees this strange group of Galileans speaking in all these various languages, telling about the mighty works of God and probably doing this with, with unhindered joy. It's the kind of scene that if it happened today would cause everyone to pull out their phone and start recording. Uh, This was a unique experience. It was strange. It was striking. It was out of the ordinary. So it it quickly attracted this crowd. People were coming to see what was going on. And some in this crowd of Jewish people from the surrounding nations ask in verse 12, they say, what does this mean? And then others in the crowd mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. And in response to these responses, Peter steps forth, and it says that he's sort of flanked by the 11 apostles. He's standing there as the spokesman. And he lifts up his voice and he says, that he, and he brings some, some clarity to all this confusion that's happening. We get to read Peter's sermon in verses 14 to 36. It's the first sermon of the New Covenant Church. What an amazing thing. Now, this is almost certainly not the entirety of the sermon. Uh, it'd be a pretty short one. It takes you about three minutes to read it. Um, in fact, at the end, we're told... Uh, after this this sermon proper, we're told that Peter continued to bear witness and to exhort those present. So this is probably a summary of what of what Peter said. It's like what you tell your husband or your wife who was working in the nursery when they say, well, what was the sermon about? Of course, if you give this good of a summary, then you might as well just preach the sermon probably. But it's similar to that. And so, if Luke is recording Peter's sermon in a nutshell, then let me summarize Luke's summary for you. Um, In verses 14 through 36, Peter is saying to those who are gathered uh, around him this is kind of long. I meant to have it printed in the bulletin, but I failed to do so. This is what he's saying. He's saying, What you are witnessing is the promised pouring out of God's Spirit. And it is Jesus, Jesus who lived powerfully among you, Jesus who was crucified who was raised and exalted, who is pouring out this spirit. Therefore, repent and believe so that you can be part of this great salvation that God has accomplished through Jesus. This What you're seeing is the pouring out of the spirit, and it's Jesus through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension who is the one who is pouring it out right now. Believe, therefore. As we look at this sermon, what you're going to see is that the heart of Jesus' message is the person And the work of Jesus Christ, which makes perfect sense if it's the first sermon of the New Covenant Church. Jesus is central. It's his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He is the one that's sending the Spirit. But today, we're just going to think about the first thing that Peter says in verses 14 through 21. And that's this. What you are witnessing is the promised pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's the basic thing we're going to see. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that was promised. So Peter begins by addressing the crowd as men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So it's the Jewish people present who are his audience, and he addresses them as such throughout. Verse 22, he says men of Israel. Verse 29, he addresses them as brothers, meaning fellow Jews. Verse 36, he concludes the sermon with the phrase, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So Jesus is the the Messiah. He's the one that's promised to the Jewish people. And so they would be the ones that we would imagine would most readily hear and understand this message. But we also saw last week remember that these foreign tongues that had just been spoken pointed both to the opening of the door of salvation to all nations, but they also on the flip side were a judgment on the Jewish people for having rejected the Messiah. In fact, if you read this sermon of Peter, you will see that there is a, a heaviness to his message where he really points out, you, the P, God's very own people, have crucified your Messiah. It's a heavy message. But here at the beginning, he is addressing what's being seen and heard. And, and I'll just give you two points for, for what I think his message is. The first point that he says is, this is not what you think. That's the first thing he's clarifying. This is not what you think. So he names his audience, and then Peter opens with a joke. Uh, so preachers throughout the ages have apostolic precedents for opening with a joke, I think. Uh, I'm going to tell my friends in the Philippines that, because those brothers love a good joke in a sermon. Um, I say he opens with a joke because I don't think Peter is taking the mockery of the, the this portion of the crowd very seriously. He He's sure to deny their conclusion, but he essentially says, Friends, We can't be drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Uh, There hasn't been enough time in the day for us to get drunk. I think that's kind of funny, and I think Peter's sort of making a joke. And I think the crowd maybe laughed when he said that. Two notes, then, on Peter's dismissal of the mocking skeptics for us. One is this, that as followers of Jesus, don't take every accusation against you or against the church too seriously. Don't take every accusation, every false claim against you or the church too seriously. In other words, relax. (laughs) I'm not trying to make light of mockery and of persecution, but I just want to remind us that Jesus told us to not be surprised when people mock us and make fun of us for being Christians. So relax. And remember that we hold to a faith that has always been and will always be contested and ridiculed in this present world. And if we are going to be people who get bent out of shape at every accusation and every mischaracterization and every lie that's said about God's church, then we are going to live in a constant state of anger. And we are always going to feel like victims in this world. In fact, some people do live in that state. And that's a pity. And it's a poor witness, I think, in this world. Of course, on the other side of, of anger, we could slip into fear and silence. We, we don't want to own up to the fact that we are, are part of this strange group that's being mocked. We're, we're embarrassed. We become like Peter. Not Peter on this occasion, but, but Peter when he denies the Lord after the Lord has been arrested, he chooses not to be named as one of his disciples. I think Peter demonstrates that if, if we're going to stand for Jesus in our culture, we're going to probably need some thick skin and we're going to need a good sense of humor. Or will be shamed into silence, or will always be on the edge of anger. And I think instead we, we need to see sometimes that the best response to an accusation is to reveal it for how ridiculous it is. We can take a moment and hold up what people are saying. We can say, now wait a minute. Do you really think that's true? What you're accusing me of, do you really think that Christians hate everybody? Do you really think that's what that's true? And I think if people are honest. Uh, they will agree that that's a little ridiculous. They may, we may even be able to laugh with others, to acknowledge to some extent that who we are and what we believe and how we act and live is a little strange on the surface. But that's the second thing, I, I, I second thought about Peter's response, is God's work will always look like foolishness to those without eyes of faith. The work that God does will always look like foolishness. It will always look ridiculous to people, without eyes of faith. They will always begin with skepticism and mockery, and then they will look for some sort of naturalistic explanation before they will ever consider a supernatural one. In other words, they will try to explain things based on what they know from normal life before they consider the possibility of the answer being found in some sort of unseen realm. Now, having said that, having said that we will always look That God's work will always look like foolishness to those without eyes of faith. Having said that, we should also know that there are some foolish things that are done in the name of Jesus that should be viewed as foolish in the watching role. So we don't have to associate with those things. But barring those things, we should embrace the sort of on-the-surface strangeness of who we are and what we believe, of the things that we sing about, of of how we talk and and what we do. We should remember that the early church was accused of cannibalism because of the way they took the Lord's Supper. They were accused of incest because husbands and wives were calling each other brother and sister. It's continued. It, It happened in the beginning and it will continue on. We don't always need to be concerned about what others think, about how we conduct ourselves and how we speak to one another. And even amongst ourselves, even amongst us as believers, we need to be careful. That we that as we're led by and we're filled with the Spirit, that we respect one another, but we're also a bit unhindered at the gaze of others as we seek to follow God's leading, whether that be as individuals or as a church. May may God give us eyes to to see how He's working, to look for supernatural explanations, and to believe that He is at work amongst us. It's okay to take your faith seriously. It's okay to really seek after God. It's okay to be excited about what he's doing. Don't try to be cool all the time. It's okay to be a little strange. And may we be a place that says, if we're seeking the spirit, then that's, that's okay. So Peter begins his sermon by saying, this is not what you think. And then he follows up by saying, this is what you heard. Second point, this is what you heard. The crowd had sort of misidentified what was happening. So now Peter is going to correctly explain it. He said, this is not what you think. This is actually what you heard. And he begins by quoting the prophet Joel and saying, this this that you are seeing is that which you have heard in the prophets. What you're looking at is what Joel talked about. Peter is going to make a bold claim. And that claim is that what is being witnessed right there in Jerusalem is what was promised by the prophets. That's a bold claim. Four things then that Peter draws out by quoting Joel. And he starts big. He says to those gathered, these are the last days. These are the last days, friends. If you look back at Joel 2, 28-32, which is where Peter's quoting from, you'll see that those verses begin with the words, And it shall come to pass afterward. But Peter changes that. You see what he says in verse 17? And in the last days it shall be. That's what Joel was saying. Peter's not adding to God's word. He's saying what Joel was saying. The last days that were coming, that's what Joel was talking about. So Peter makes that clear. And in so doing, he is saying that the coming of the Spirit signals that we have entered into the last days. He's going to write in his epistle. In 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, the prophets like Joel, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, Spirit of Christ in the prophets, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Probably something like Pentecost, subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them, revealed to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, us, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And then in verse 20 of First Peter 1, he says of Jesus, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The author of Hebrews agrees with Peter that we are in the last times. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, familiar verses. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But when? In these last days. He has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. The age ushered in by the sending of the Spirit is the last days foretold by the prophets. Now, when we think about the last days, we think about the coming return of Christ, and that is partially right. In fact, somewhat to make a strong division between verses 18 and 19 in the quotation of Joel's prophecy, I think that's probably how I have typically understood it. Uh, In other words, the thought is that the first part, this prophecy about the spirit coming is fulfilled now, but the part about the signs in heaven is going to be fulfilled later. And in fact, Revelation 6, describing the sixth seal, references this exact same prophecy in Joel. So there's some truth to that. But we should also remember that 50 days earlier, the entire sky went black in the middle of the day when Jesus was crucified. And some people even postulate that in connection with that darkness, that when the moon rose, it would have looked blood red. It would have been a blood red moon that, that rose in that Passover time. And Jesus himself predicted massive upheaval, up, upheaval that would come with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so I think that there's going to be a massive uptick in these signs and wonders before the return of Christ but there are also we also live in a period of these kinds of things this upheaval that is happening certainly then and even so now. now all that to say that we should not speak of the last days only as the the day of Christ's return rather the finished work of Jesus and the descent of the spirit means something amazing it means that right now we are in the last times and while we are still waiting for Christ's return, Christ's return, his return as is as sure and as guaranteed as the fact of his resurrection. And so here we are, 2018, in the last days. We live in the days that were longed for and spoken of by the prophets. We live in the days of the fullness of God's revelation of, in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that's witnessed by the Spirit. We live in the days of the fullness of Of God's Spirit. That's what Peter points out next. He said that these are the last days. And the next thing he's saying by quoting Joel is that this that you're seeing, this is the pouring out of the Spirit. This is the pouring out of the Spirit. The repetition of that phrase, pouring out, in verse 17 I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And in verse 18, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is the pouring out of the spirit. Have you ever witnessed an enormous amount of rain? (laughs) Of course, we've all just witnessed that this weekend. Uh, We've had over 10 inches of rain in February. Three of those inches came yesterday. It's an amazing amount of rain. It's one thing to watch a rainstorm from inside your home, but have you ever been caught in that kind of a downpour. I know I have more than once. In fact, I've got this great picture of Andrew and I when we were on vacation with my family early in our mar- in our marriage, commemorating just one time when we got caught in a downpour. We had gone on a hike on some sand dunes, and while we were out, the sky just opened up. I mean, poured. And there were no trees around. There were no buildings around. And all we could do was just sort of keep walking until we got back to our car, and then we drove back to the house that we were staying in, but we were just completely soaked. That's the picture here. It's the picture of a downpour that is at the heart of the coming of the Spirit. Peter, through Joel, is saying that this manifestation of the Spirit is not a trickle. And and it's not just a stream that's coming on a few chosen people. This is not like the Spirit rushing on Saul and David it's not like the spirit coming on a small group of people. Rather, this is the full-on monsoon of the reign of the spirit of God drenching everyone who is his true child in the faith. I think that picture communicates two things. One, this pouring out is unrestrained. It is completely unrestrained. Nothing is being held back. In other words, This is the pouring out of the fullness of the Spirit and of His power. This is not a taste of the Spirit. This is not a piece of the Spirit. This is the Spirit of God sent by Christ in all of His power and all of His authority. The hymn, "Here Is Love, was written during the Welsh Revival of 1904. It says it like this, Of thy fullness thou art pouring thy great love and power on me without measure, full and boundless. Drawing out my heart to thee. It's unrestrained. And next, it's indiscriminate. It is completely indiscriminate. Notice the list in verses 17 and 18. It begins with your sons and daughters. Your sons and your daughters, there is no distinction made based on gender. Men and women equally in these last days are receiving the full pouring out of the Spirit. Next, young men your young men and your old men. The spirit does not discriminate on gender. The spirit does not discriminate on age. Everyone who repents and believes from children to octogenarians and everyone in between receives the fullness of the spirit. And finally there in verse 18, and even on my male and female servants, no division based on gender, on age, no division based on social status. The poor and despised who truly believe receive the same spirit as the king who does it. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon and the fullness of the Holy Spirit receives. There's nothing like this in all the world. There is no religion, there is no faith system that so equally empowers all people and crushes hierarchy. There is a need for order in the church. There are positions of authority that are helpful, but the new covenant people of God all equally receive the unrestrained and indiscriminate pouring out of the Spirit. There is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female, there are no slave or free and contrary to how some people take this passage and other passages in the book of Acts and and do such damage with them, there are no followers of Jesus who have more of the Spirit than others. Now, there are those that are more yielded to the Spirit, that know the fullness of the Spirit more. They're more influenced and controlled by Him. But in these last days, God has poured out His Spirit in an unrestrained and indiscriminate Way And if you are his child, you're indwelt by that spirit. Every one of us has access to this full unrestrained power of God's spirit in us. If we've come to faith in Christ, no one is excluded from that. So Peter says, this is what you're seeing. These are the last days. This is the pouring out of the spirit. Well, what does that mean? Peter says, among other things, that it means, third, those you hear speaking are prophets. Everyone you hear speaking is a prophet. The speaking of prophecies, the dreaming of dreams, the seeing of visions, these are all acts of a prophet. And now that the Spirit has come on all believers in Jesus, everyone is a prophet. This is what was longed for in the days of Israel. It was God's desire for his people. In Numbers 11, 70 elders are gathered to help Moses to control and and understand and help the people. And the spirit falls on them, this group of 70, and they prophesy. But then the text says that they stopped, except for two, Eldad and Medad. And Joshua comes to Moses and tells him this. And he tells him to tell them to stop it. Tell them to stop prophesying, Moses. But Moses replies in Numbers eleven twenty nine, not just with his desire, but I believe with God's desire. And he says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's God's desire that all would be prophets and it begins on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit and it continues now. What does that mean? What does it mean that all of God's people are prophets? Prophecy involves some sort of speaking ministry. But more than that, Sinclair Ferguson writes that it it signifies, quote, sharing the Messianic spirit experience, experience, and experiencing the knowledge which only the spirit could give. He goes on. Let me read a little bit of a quote from him. A status, prophet, and relationship, intimate knowledge. So the status is of a prophet and the relationship is intimate knowledge. A status and relationship with God, known at first hand only by the few under the old, old covenant, just a few, could now be enjoyed by all. Now all have received the Messianic anointing. This is the sense in which the new covenant promise is fulfilled. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four. No longer is an anointed human mediator required to teach us to know the Lord. Now all who receive the Spirit of Jesus... The exalted prophet Messiah share the prophetic anointing in Christ. They have immediate personal knowledge of God. All in this sense are prophets as well as priests and kings. You feel the wonder of that. That we are in these last days. God has poured out his spirit and he has made us prophets. That all of God's people, you by faith in Christ can know the joy and the privilege of being a prophet of status of intimate relationship because of the Spirit. How can we know status in intimate relationship? The point that Peter is going to expand on out of this is the fourth one I want to give you, and it's this. Jesus is the Lord who can save you. Jesus is the only Lord who can save you. Joel's prophecy ends in verse 21. Well-known words, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter is about to say, and the Lord is Jesus. If you want to be saved, you must call on Jesus. There is an assumption in our culture that everyone has status and relationship with God just by virtue of being a human being but let's be clear that Scripture is clear that it's only possible by God's grace through faith in Christ and the Spirit that He sends. There is no salvation. There is no relationship with God. There is no status. There is no intimate understanding of who God is except through Jesus Christ. Everyone must call on Him. Everyone must repent of their sins and trust in the work of Jesus who was baptized by fire so that we could be baptized with his spirit. And if you have called on the name of the Lord, if you are if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are children of God, then we must live as Spirit indwelt, spirit-empowered prophets. Because that's what Jesus made us to be. We have to live into the fullness of the Spirit, in the fullness of of this relationship that Jesus has brought us into, we have to lean and press in to this status and know more and more deeply what God has done for us in Christ. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a spirit-indwelt, spirit-empowered prophet? It looks like Jesus... I think the disciples knew exactly what a spirit-empowered person was. Because Jesus was the most spirit-filled person that ever lived. And they watched him live his life. And we get to do the same through the Gospels. In his birth, he was, his entire birth was marked by the overshadowing of the Spirit. Even before he's born, he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. His growth is marked by the ministry of the Spirit. His ministry begins when the Spirit descends on him at his baptism. And then that same Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And then that Spirit strengthens him in temptation. That's what it looks like to live empowered and indwelt by the Spirit. Jesus takes up the scroll of Isaiah and he announces this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then all of his mighty works attest to that fact. Through the spirit, he offers up himself on the cross, Hebrews 9, 14. And while he was put to death in the body, he's made alive by the spirit. He's vindicated by the spirit when he's raised from the dead. And now the father and the son have poured out the spirit on everyone who believes. Think about the significance of that. The spirit hasn't just come. The Spirit has been sent by a joint act of the Father and the Son because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit so that when you and I believe in Christ, He dwells in us. Can we grasp that reality? Not fully, but we can keep trying. And that, that poured out indwelling Spirit means that You and I now can live as spirit indwelt, spirit empowered prophets because that's who Jesus made you to be. You can live a life worthy of the gospel. You can look like Jesus. Jesus, the most spirit empowered man to ever live. The church, God's people, are not a joke, and we're not drunk on some earthly wine. Rather, we are those who recognize that we now live in the last days, the days promised by the prophets, days when God's Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. It's made us prophets. It's made us priests. It's made us kings through faith in Jesus. Jesus, who's the great prophet, priest, and king. He's the one that we call on to be saved. And in light of all of these breathtaking truths, we have to, we're called to live like Christ. We're called to, by the Spirit, press in to know what that means. So let's do it. Let's live like the Spirit-empowered people that Christ has made us to be. And by the Spirit that He has given us, let's, let's live like what He has called us to do and to be as His children and do it For the glory of God alone. Let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see what this all means. That these would not just be words on a page or words that I've said, but that you would help us to see the deep, spiritual, unseen reality of what Christ has done. But that you, that we are in these last days, and that your Spirit has been poured out in an unrestrained way, on each of us who have faith in You. And You've called us to live within that, to live as prophets and priests and kings, to, to look like Jesus in our daily lives. What I just sense in my own heart that there is so much more to that than I've tasted even yet. So much more to that that our church can know and and understand. And so we pray for that, God. We pray that your spirit would fill us as individuals, that you would fill our church, that you would empower us in a deep way, that we would press in to know more and more the work of your spirit in each of us and how you are using your spirit to, to glorify Christ, to glorify you in how we live. Father, um, do what, what I cannot which is, I guess, nothing, but I trust, Lord, that your work can, by your Spirit, through your Word, you can help us to know and understand these things, and not just know and understand them, but to live and to walk in them, Lord. Pray for a, a great filling of your Spirit, a great work that you would do in, in us and in our city, in our nation, in our world, for your glory, God, by your Spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.